and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, greetings from Washington. It's July 20th. And I say that because things are moving quickly here in Washington, or at least maybe moving quickly. And anything we say today could very well change in the coming days. So full caveat emptor there in terms of what follows, in terms of we try and break down what's happening or might be happening in Washington. You know, one of the promises we made to you way back when we started this podcast is that we really wanted to focus on policy here, not on politics. And we've taken that goal seriously through an entire election season and since. Yet sometimes it's almost impossible to see where politics ends and policy starts. As we've said before, the best tax policy in the world without the votes is meaningless. I mean, how much ink has been spilled talking about a VAT over the last few decades, as an example? So here we are in the middle of a session where Congress is considering some of the most sweeping policy changes since, well, since 2017, but sweeping nonetheless, certainly among the most important since 1986. And yet it's impossible to talk about how these policies unfold without revisiting the state of politics. So that's our objective for today, to discuss the political situation without being political, if you know what I mean. And to do that, we are joined by our resident experts, Jennifer Gray and Tom Stout. So to pick up where we left off, the Senate is still actively pursuing a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now, that's evolved a little since we last spoke, and we could talk about that. And maybe that process is nearing an end. Maybe not. But since we did last speak, the Senate has also announced the outlines of a $3.5 trillion deal on a Democratic-only budget bill that would follow the bipartisan package. And that deal has important consequences for what a tax package might look like. But first, the bipartisan bill. Let's come back to that. And Jennifer, I'm going to ask you, can you just bring us up to speed July 20th? What's the latest in terms of developments there? Well, the actual bill still does not exist. They're still trying to negotiate out some of the details, particularly with the offsets, of course, which are always the the holdup, but also I think to some degree with the actual infrastructure spending side. So lots of conversations have been going on in recent days and weeks, of course, between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate who are part of this integral group of trying to get this bipartisan bill with 60 votes together, as well as a lot of interaction from the White House from what we understand. But You know, at this point, we do not have legislative language. And of course, without legislative language, the Congressional Budget Committee and the Joint Committee on Taxation aren't able to do their magic to come up with the various numbers to get an idea of what the budgetary impact would be both on the spending side and on the offset side. So we're waiting on that to some degree. In the meantime, Senator Schumer is trying to move this whole process forward, both, of course, potentially on this bipartisan deal, but because they are connected also with the $3.5 trillion deal that you mentioned as well. So last night he started some of the procedural maneuvering in order to set up a procedural vote as early as tomorrow. Now that vote could be delayed. You know, a lot of senators are, are uncomfortable or expressing that they're uncomfortable voting for a bill when they don't actually have a bill when they not only do not have legislative language, but also don't have the budget numbers from the, again, from CBO or joint tax. So at this point, it does not appear that a vote would get 60 votes if that were to take place tomorrow. Again, though, you know, that could potentially slip. We're not sure how long that could slip. You know, Schumer's, again, really trying to move this process along. And so I think it's very interesting, I think, to see how he reacts in the next couple of days. Is it safe to say that 
what Senator Schumer is trying to do here is have this test vote to make a determination, at least a very preliminary determination, whether or not this bipartisan effort is real. I mean, are there really 60 votes? And if it fails that test vote, does that mean that he would then be able to move on to a Democratic only approach? Do you think that's part of why Schumer is now really trying to force the issue? It certainly feels that way, although he has very directly said this is not a, a quote, Fisher cut bait moment. So certainly they're trying to get some idea of how they move forward on this process. As you stated, it's July 20th, and the indications we have are that they want to have a budget resolution passed before they leave for the August recess. And there's not a lot of time for that to happen at this point. Time is marching on. So I think they need to get some idea of what's happening with the bipartisan bill, because whether or not that is successful could have the potential to impact what the budget resolution itself looks like. Yeah, I mean, I guess Schumer's point of view is that, hey, you you can vote for this, right, which is a procedural vote to continue on to move on to, you know, beginning to debate the bill and still vote against the bill later, as you were saying. So it doesn't mean this preliminary vote means you're absolutely committed to the bill, but you've, we've got to have this so that we can begin the process. Jennifer, no taxes in here, right? We've assumed that taxes are not a part of this bipartisan package, at least the, the tax proposals from the Biden plan. Is that still a safe assumption? Certainly none of the major tax proposals that we have been discussing over the last few months are expected to be included. There is some discussion, perhaps there could be some Superfund taxes in there, perhaps. But outside of that, I think from the tax realm, it looks like it will be fairly limited. And notably, over the weekend, one of the related tax items, the funding for the IRS, um, fell out of the bill, right? And they were relying on that to in theory, raise revenue with the notion that for every dollar you give the IRS, you get some multiple return. And so that's no longer part of the bipartisan package, correct? Right. And it had always been, I think, controversial on the Republican side uh, for a variety of reasons. And then, you know, I think from both sides, there was always this question of what type of credit they would get or what sort of revenue score they would actually get from the Joint Committee on Taxation and or CBO on a return on that spending. So it was always a bit of a questionable offset. Yeah, and it doesn't mean it's gone, right? Democrats can pick it up and put it in the Democratic-only trailer bill at any time, and I assume that they would. So let's talk about that trailer bill or whatever we want to call it, Tom. Let's just assume for a moment, we're not predicting anything, but let's just assume for a moment that this bipartisan bill fails to move forward. And the Democrats say, okay, fine, we need to now move on with the Democratic-only bill using budget reconciliation. Would that mean, do you think, or do we know the answer to this, the, the money that they'd hope to spend in that bipartisan bill, does that now need to get transferred over into the Democratic-only bill? And does that mean, you know, that the 3.5 really a trillion in that second bill needs to be more, or is it really set at 3.5, or do we not even know? Well, given we don't haven't seen the bill, of course, we can't be that certain of anything, but it's fairly certain this moves over to the to the reconciliation bill if this, if this bipartisan bill fails. What they've done with the, the bipartisan bill is they've taken Biden's 2.3 or 2.7, depending on how you measure it, jobs bill, and pulled out the hard infrastructure pieces of that, or so-called hard infrastructure pieces, things like roads and bridges and, and water and, and broadband, and either fully or partially funded those programs in this bill, or at least top line numbers. So, you know, if, if this fails, this is you know really the core part of the jobs bill. So it, it would have to move back. And, you know, the total cost of 
this bill in terms of new spending, not to compare apples and oranges, but you know, this is billed as a $1.2 trillion bipartisan bill. It includes about $579 billion in new spending. You know, that's the 579 that's effectively taken out of the the 2.3 that Biden has in the jobs plan. So that would presumably go back in and the 3.5 trillion dollar budget agreement that Jennifer mentioned would presumably then become a a four to four and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill at some point. Theoretically, although, I mean, I guess you could argue that those who negotiated that $3.5 trillion, you know, there was negotiation between moderate and, and more progressive Democrats came up with that number. Is there the possibility that those moderates would say, no, no, you know, we're only prepared to go as big as 3.5 inside a reconciliation bill? You, we can discuss what's what the 3.5 adds up to or where it comes from. But we're not prepared to add more. Or do you think that they would be fine adding another the 579 to the 3.5, or again, or is it a negotiation we'd have to see play out? It, it's it's clearly a negotiation at this point. The, the 4.5 that Biden was proposing was always at the end of the day going to be something of a negotiation, in part because not everyone agrees with everything in the spending program or how it's to be spent. And then there becomes the all-important question of how you're going to offset it. It's, it's one thing to say you want to spend $4.5 trillion. It's, it's another thing to say if you're going to fully offset that. What taxes are you going to increase in order to get there? So this was always going to be a negotiation at the end of the day. And, you know, it could end up being 3.5 trillion in total rather than the 4.5 trillion or something less than that even. Well, to your point of, you know, how are we going to pay for it? We're warming up to that point. We're getting there. But before we do that, Jennifer, one more question. Okay. So we keep talking about this second bill, right? We had this agreement deal, you know, maybe air quote deal. I don't know how, how meaningful the deal is, but they've said it's $3.5 trillion. This is the Democratic-only reconciliation bill. Okay, when they say $3.5 trillion, do we know what they mean by that? What do you think that means? Honestly, we don't. We think, it appears, that it means it is basically a bill that would have a cost or have items in it that would equal $3.5 trillion or so in spending. It's possible, as Tom pointed out, you know, perhaps the net number would be smaller, even if they do stick with that $3.5 trillion. And my understanding is that not all Democrats have completely signed off on that number, that it may be a subset of Senate Democrats who have agreed to that at this point. But assuming they stick with that $3.5 trillion number, it could be that they have offsets, whether those be significant tax increases, perhaps some spending cuts. Of course, there are other ways to bring in revenues that aren't through the Internal Revenue Code. You know, So it's possible that even if they stick with that $3.5 trillion in spending ideas that the net numbers could be smaller than that. And, you know, what I mean by the number is sort of the number that's going to be potentially added to the deficit. To the deficit. Right. But because if you, I think about it in the context of the TCJA, we have, you know, I remember that very well. The reconciliation target there was that they could add $1.5 trillion to the deficit as part of that bill. And once that happened, I think we knew there was going to be a tax bill, right? Because, you know, you, you just were blessed to deficit finance $1.5 trillion in tax cuts. Here, we don't think that's what they're saying. We, we, I think what you just said is the $3.5 trillion doesn't seem to be they're saying you can add that to the deficit. What It seems like they're saying that's the total size of the reconciliation bill of which we can debate how much is being offset and how, et cetera. But it seems like that's the top line number, not the bottom line number. In other words, the total, not the net. 
potentially. And, you know, to, to look back again at the TCGA that you just brought up, the net number, the, the deficit increase was around 1.5. But do you remember, John, I mean, the total amount, if you looked at all the tax changes that were in that bill, it, it was huge. Five was it and a half trillion, trillion tax cuts. I thought it was five trillion, right? Five and a half trillion tax cuts, right. four trillion in tax increases for a grand, some, you know, gross amount of 9.5, but net 1.5. So, right. So almost right. $10 trillion in changes. So, you know, it depends on how you look at the bill, how large that bill was. You know, we refer to it as 1.5 because that was the the net cost of it. So again, the, the net cost of this bill could be a little different. And, you know, one other thing, you know, we haven't really touched on is you know, there is still some question about what types of programs can be put through reconciliation. You know, we can't lose sight of the fact that if they move forward with this Democrat-only bill, that will be through the reconciliation process, which is very complicated and could create some complications with some of the things they want to do, maybe difficult to do through the the various rules that govern that process as well. Right. We can do a separate episode about what Absolutely. that is and what that isn't. But, you know, cutting to the chase, they all have to have budgetary effect. You know, I think we talked in a previous episode about why the minimum wage was not possible, according to the parliamentarian, in reconciliation. Some of the things the Democrats are talking about in this infrastructure bill, things like a clean energy standard or potentially labor standards may be difficult to do in reconciliation. It's subject to the ruling from the parliamentarian. Right. If you remember, there was an attempt to put a minimum wage in- increase through the reconciliation bill that was signed in March, and the parliamentarian determined that was not allowed. So again, you, there are some questions about whether everything the Democrats are hoping to do through this bill would be allowed under a reconciliation process. Right. Reconciliation is is complex with many hurdles that one must get through and limitations, although it's better than doing nothing. So I think that's where the Democrats have, you know, they may end up as, as what they'll have to do to get what they can through reconciliation, knowing that they can't do everything they wanted to do. All right, Tom, let's come back to this $3.5 trillion. So let's just assume for the moment that that's the size, right? The total size of spending is $3.5 trillion. Does that then mean that they would need to increase taxes by $3.5 trillion? Because I think Senator Manchin has said he wants to pay for it all. So does that mean if the, t- the total amount of spend is $3.5 trillion, that Congress is going to have to increase taxes by $3.5 trillion? Or are there other creative methods of accounting that uh, Congress can deploy here? Well, there's certainly a lot of creative methods of accounting. This is Washington. And we've got about 600 billion of them in the in the bipartisan infrastructure bill because that's how they're paying for it is basically Washington accounting. They're also likely, given you know how much money they're going to need, they appear to be looking elsewhere as well. There's been talk of, of adding an immigration reform to this, which people might be interested in knowing, actually raises quite a bit of revenue, probably in excess of 200 billion dollars over 10 years. There's also talk of looking at prescription drug pricing, which could raise in excess of $500 billion over 10 years. That may be necessary, you know, depending on you know how those whose votes are necessary to pass a Democratic-only bill demand revenue neutrality, and whether it's over 10 years or 15 years, what they might have to add to the you know the two to three trillion dollars worth of tax increases that uh, over 10 years that Biden's proposed in the jobs plan and the families plan. So, you know, they're, they're going to be looking around for revenue at the same time, you know, as we were discussing a little while ago, John, that may require them to, to reduce some of their spending targets as well in order to be able to find sufficient revenue. All details to be worked out. So if I heard you right then, Tom, let's just say of the $3.5 trillion of spending, if we're going to truly offset, you know, air quote, pay for it all, um, 
that we could perhaps get as much as a trillion from non-tax matters, maybe more, maybe less, but maybe more, but some of the things you talked about, prescription drug pricing, et cetera. Uh, let's just say we find a trillion there. That leaves us with 2.5 trillion. Let's just say we choose to pay for it over 15 years instead of 10, which you might say, well, you know, that's tricky. But the reality is, is the tax increases being proposed are permanent. The spending is temporary. So maybe it's not such an unfair way for Congress to think about it, that, you know, eventually this thing would pay for itself over time if the tax increases were truly permanent and the spending was temporary. And so if we say 15 versus 10 years, I think that reduces the cost, if my math is correct, by a third, roughly. So maybe we're in more like in the $1.5 to $2 trillion range of tax increases that they would have to achieve. That's an open question of whether or not they can still do that, but it certainly sounds a lot better than having to find $3.5 trillion of tax increases. So I guess the point is, Tom, I think this is what you're saying is paid for is a relative term. It's more or less, would you agree with this statement? It's what Congress thinks paid for is, not what some official budgetary accounting might say paid for is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In this case, because what we're doing here you know, is not likely to run afoul of the budget reconciliation rules. That was a problem with the TCJA where we were cutting taxes and we ran into a bird rule issue where you couldn't increase the deficit outside of the 10-year budget window. In this case, what we're doing is increasing spending in the 10-year budget window, but we're offsetting it with permanent tax increases. So it's it's very likely, almost inevitable, that beyond that 10-year window, we'll be reducing the deficit. So you know, it's it's a political consideration here rather than a technical budget reconciliation problem. In some ways, you would argue that this is the perfect scenario for budget reconciliation, right? Permanent tax increases to pay for temporary spending is sort of the easiest possible way to meet the many standards of, of budget reconciliation. There are other problems in terms of how to direct the spending, but in terms of just that accounting you put out, it seems like this would work. Right. That's what budget reconciliation was originally designed for, was to, to permit Congress and particularly the Senate to be able to pass legislation to reduce deficits you know, without requiring 60 votes. Yep. Right. Which, again, theoretically, this would over time, eventually, if the tax increases go on forever, would reduce the deficit in the long term. And Democrats may take comfort in that in terms of how they view this as paid for, whether that's over 10 or 15 or 20 or who knows how many years. All right. Then let me come back to both of you then. Okay. This is interesting conversation, but how does this really play out? So this Democratic-only bill for the moment, this isn't going to happen before Congress leaves for their August recess. Is that Fair to say. Anybody disagree with that? Is there any chance this happens in the next couple of weeks? You're talking about an actual bill? Uh, yes. No, absolutely no. not. <laughs> okay, good. I just want to make sure I wasn't crazy here. Okay, so then Congress leaves for August. They come back, not until late, really. The House doesn't come back, I don't think, until September 20th. The Senate mostly gone till September 20th, maybe one or two days here and there before then. So what should we be expecting to see in terms of how this plays out in September, October, November? Well, I mean, the, the idea here, first of all, is to figure out what can pass on a bipartisan basis so that beyond that, uh, Schumer and the, and the Senate can figure out, uh, the Democrats can figure out what they need to put in a budget resolution for the, the wraparound budget reconciliation bill that will come sometime probably in the fall. That is what they're trying to determine right now. Is that what you're getting at, Tom? Is that they need yep. to figure out what can they do on a bipartisan basis and to the extent they can't move on to a partisan basis. And that should happen before Congress leaves in August. That determination, right? Yes, that's the plan anyway. But then what, Jennifer? Okay, so we come back in September and we have bills flying around. Is that how it goes? 
That's the potential. I think the process is a little unclear, potentially, if there's still a bipartisan vehicle in the negotiation because, you know, it's unclear who will move first, the House or the Senate, and how that will move forward. Also, I feel like we focus so much on the Senate and, you know, I always try to remind myself, think about the House. And my understanding is right now there are four vacancies. There's an election in Texas at the end of this month, which would fill one of those with a Republican because it's a uh, two Republicans in the race and a runoff. So, you know, when they come back, there will only be a three-seat majority for the Democrats in the House. So, you know, we focus so much on the Senate, but it's going to be very interesting to see how the House reacts to some of these bills that perhaps can get Senate uh, support. But, you know, there's still the question out there, how will they be received by the House as well? It's a fair point. I mean, we've heard uh, even today in the case of, you know, both progressives and moderates in the House. And today, I think some of the progressives were expressing frustration about the budget deal that is working through the Senate. But sometimes the House really has little leverage on this because of how hard this is to do in the Senate. They may just have to take what the Senate sends them. But does anybody see this bill being enacted by September 30th? No, we're talking this is going to play out all fall is still our best guess. I know we've said that before. Anything that's happened over the last month plus change anybody's point of view that this could happen sooner? I don't see anything that indicates that things have gotten easier that the deal here has gotten easier to put together. So I think it's just going to take a while, not only for the actual mechanisms and processes to work through the system, but you know, also just the coming together on the policy. Agree with that, Tom? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, if anything, this uh, the bipartisan infrastructure business has probably slowed things down a little bit. Yes, Tom. So it sounds like we're going to be having this conversation for weeks or months yet to come. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I'd like to leave you with one last observation about this episode. We talked a lot in developing this topic on how to produce something durable on a topic that is inherently ephemeral. In other words, with the Senate vote at least possible in the next day or two, why would you listen to this July 20th episode on, say, August 20th? And here's the point. It's easy, tempting, really, to overstate the importance of Schumer's call for a vote. I urge you to resist that temptation, no matter what happens in the short term, whether the vote fails, the vote succeeds, or the vote doesn't even happen. In all of those scenarios, really, outcomes for this infrastructure, and therefore the tax bill, are all still alive. For example, failure to force a vote this week could simply mean deferral for the same vote till next week. A successful procedural vote could still result in a failed vote on the actual bill, and so on. And all this really illustrates the tightrope that Majority Leader Schumer is walking, simultaneously trying to make progressives and centrists happy. That's never easy. But he needs them all to be happy, of course, to rally support for the Democratic-only reconciliation bill in the end, which is arguably the true brass ring here in the legislative agenda. So what's my advice for all of you in the coming days, weeks, and months? All of this Senate procedural stuff is not familiar ground to most or maybe all of you, I know. But remember, putting all that aside, human nature, even for senators, is the same. So draw upon your own experiences here. Believe it or not, I once made an honest living as a transactional tax lawyer. And I imagine most all of you have worked on a big transaction or deal at some point in your career. And my experience there taught me that one thing is almost always true. Every large deal has to die, maybe more than once, before it can live. And so it may be here as well. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.